Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 7th, 2017, and this is episode 2059 of the Survival Podcast. Again, it is a Monday. That means it is time for a listener feedback show. This is where I uh, respond to your emails at jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Remember to get that email screen to be included on a show like this. Put TSPC in the subject line. Got a, a variety of things to talk about today. The first one on the docket today, I actually am surprised I haven't been emailed about it. But I have been dismayed at the level of people referring to this texting suicide case as a person being convicted for a thought crime. Um, people in this community, too. People that I look at and think, that's really an intelligent person, and, and I'm going to tell you what I'm going to make the case for today. The case of, uh, 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 that I'm going to make on this is if you refer to that as a thought crime, you're either ignorant to the facts or you're an idiot. Now, you can be ignorant and just be wrong because you just don't know something. It's not actually an insult to say that somebody's ignorant. It is an insult to say that somebody's an idiot. In other words, I can explain it to you, but I can't understand it for you. Well, I'm going to explain it today, and I'm going to remove ignorance as a possibility for everybody in this audience on this case. I'm going to tell you what happened. And at that point, if you think it's a thought crime, you're an idiot. Sorry, you are. Now, you can still have a lot of debate about what crime actually was it, what what the what the proper penalty should be. There's all kinds of things. Personally, well, I'll save it till I get to it. Cops attempt to steal an 80-year-old woman's stolen car and auction it off. And then they try to charge her an extortion fee to give it back to her when they get caught doing it. In Colorado Springs, Colorado. Yeah, we'll talk about that one, albeit briefly. I have a really interesting question. What will happen to talk media when self-driving cars become the norm? Interesting way to think about things. I have a question on Marlin Firearms made after the 2007 buyout. And I'll tell you why I'm less concerned with that than I am kind of like the two-year, three-year period up to 2007 and the first couple years after it. Because that's where the quality issues were. It's not like Remington messed everything up. We'll talk about that in a bit. Um, Follow-up on a, on the tree sound screen barrier. Got a lot of feedback on Abervite trees and stuff. I didn't know about them. So I'm going to provide some of the listener feedback to the person asking the question and so that uh, maybe there's a better way of doing things than I recommended. And I you know, always like to be able to update and correct things like that. Um, I have a question that's really philosophical, and I like it. I, I'm going to look at this one as a challenge, and I'm going to try to do my best with it for you. I'll read the full question when we get to it, but the way I've summarized it in the notes is, can we define the nation of America versus America as a state. I think I've done a good job explaining the difference between a nation and a state, but then with that definition, can we actually say there is a nation that is America apart from the state and its apparatus of force? Good question. Look forward to trying my best on it for you guys. I have a question on the ins and outs of cooking pronghorn, and I'm going to say, or any similar-sized game. And a little bit more on the religion of climate change via AGW, anthropomorphic global warming. I have an article that's actually a couple years old, but I'm going to use it to illustrate, well, why climate change really has become a religion. And why it's impossible for us to actually know anything for fact that comes out of the sources that give it to us and tell us to believe them because 
they are authorities, right? Authority, <laughs> religion, authority, yeah. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, guys, what do you call a gun without ammo? Well, I call it an overpriced club or perhaps a way to get a loan at a pawn shop. So I keep a good supply of ammo around, and I always shop BulkAmmo.com when I need more. With shipping that's so fast you'll wonder how they do it, all the common calibers and a discount for MSV members on top of it, check out BulkAmmo.com today and give them a shot at your business. Hey folks, if silver and gold are not part of your current economic preparedness plan, they should be. In fact, for over eight years I have recommended that listeners keep 5-10% to of their wealth in precious metals as a wealth assurance program. And JM Bullion is my personal choice for all my precious metal purchases. They offer some of the best pricing in the industry and free shipping on top of it. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. Before we get to uh, your feedback, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was. In this case, the year that was the year 39 A.D. as we walk through history together. I have one segment today from David Verne, Floating Bridges and Fake Germans. Caligula continues his ridiculous and expensive stunts and embarks on one of his most ambitious this year. He orders hundreds of ships to line up in the Bay of Bain, uh, modern-day Gulf of Naples. They are packed with earth to create two-mile pontoon bridge from the vacation spot of Bai to the port of Putuli. He then rode his horse across. The lack of merchant freighters caused by this conscription will cause a grain shortage in Rome next year. His continuous spending, spending and, dis, and disrespect have caused some senators to start plotting against him. When Caligula heard of this, he called a special meeting of the Senate and revealed that he had made copies of all of the treason trial notes that he had burned at the beginning of his reign. The treason trials have started again. It was during this time that he threatened to name his horse as consul, saying the horse was smarter than the whole Senate put together. Caligula had barely any political training before becoming emperor, but he completely lacked military experience. Deciding that this was something he needed to fix, he began a campaign against the Germans. He leads an army across the Rhine, but was too nervous to head into the forest. Wanting a battle, he sent some allied Gauls into the forest dressed as Germans and charged them when they emerged from the woods. After this battle, he walked around camp talking about his bravery while most of the army stayed at the camp when reports of the attack arrived. Then the emperor and his entourage nearly trampled several soldiers, getting the emperor back to the Rhine, when word came that there was an actual German army in the area. To save face, Caligula declared victory. My take by David Verne. Legend says that Tiberius' astrologer said that Caligula had as much chance of becoming emperor as crossing the Bay of Baiae on horseback, and Caligula wanted to get rid of that prediction. His death warrant was probably signed when he reinstated the treason trials. Tiberius was paranoid, but still could be reasoned with. Caligula is anything but. When your life is on the line, survival instincts take over, and murderous plots are begun in Rome while Caligula is off playing soldier. All right, so uh, I don't think it's going to surprise anybody that I'm going to tell you that yeah, Caligula is not going to be a long-term emperor. Um, what, what he has done by this point in history is so terrified and enraged people that, frankly, there's not anybody that would really care if somebody kills them. And that's the point in history where most leaders are assassinated. When, when, they can, when, when, when a group can get together and kill a tyrant, and instead of, like, the, the second lieutenant, right, the lieutenant tyrant stepping up, assuming command, and then killing them, 
When you get to that point where like everybody's like, oh, he's dead, that's good, let's do something else now. Once you get there, then it only becomes a matter of how. Now, I'm not saying all political assassinations have been that way. I'm saying whenever it's gotten to that point, the end result sooner or later is assassination. And uh, it's part of, I think, what makes Rome almost like this... Uh, this soap opera of history, and, and, and very interesting. And I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about this as we take our walk through history further. And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you enjoy this show and you want to support us and make sure that we're able to continue to always bring this show to you uh, five days a week, Monday through Friday, and cover these great topics, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. To do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You'll get discounts to a lot of really great companies, You'll be helping to support our show with a product that will pay for itself. Many of our members tell us that their membership pays for itself three or four times over every year. And if you're a military law enforcement Peace Corps or a first responder, you do qualify for a discount. Just email me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I will get back to you with a discount code. Everybody else, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more and sign up. All right, so like I said, my lead story today is going to be this uh, this text messaging thing. I, I I cannot, for the life of me, understand how common sense thinking people, and it's a lot of people that are on the liberty side of things, would would, would define what happened here if they knew everything that happened is a thought crime. This is not a thought crime. I would say like. If your words cause somebody to kill themselves in this manner, if you said publicly, I think all stupid people should kill themselves, and some stupid person went and killed themselves, some random individual that you don't know and had no con connection with whatsoever happened to kill themselves the next day, and they said, well, it must have been him. That would be a thought crime, and I think that would be a ridiculous thing. And I don't think, even as unjust as a lot of the criminal justice system is today, I don't think anybody would be prosecuted for that at all. I think I'd be under the jail by now if, like, just saying something randomly that causes somebody that's an idiot to do it, you know, would, would constitute criminal activity when there's no intent, right? Now, as I said, I believe that if you think, in this case, um, this woman is being convicted of a thought crime, you're ignorant or you're an idiot. And I know those are strong words, but I want to kind of give you the actual text messages. This is Carter, who is the girl, and Roy, who is the young man who killed himself. This is, at first, he, she, she actually urges him to get help. This June 19th, 2014. Carter, but the mental hospital would help you. I know you don't think it would, but I'm telling you, if you give them a chance, they can save your life. This is So I think this is actually more important for... A reason that most people are skipping over. They're like, well, she, there was some intent. This shows that she knows the difference between right and wrong. And when you see how this shifts, you'll understand why a jury would convict her. She, then she says, part of me wants you to try something and fail just so you can go get help. Roy says, it doesn't help, trust me. Carter says, so what are you going to do then? Keep being all talk and no action and every day go through saying how badly you want to kill yourself? Or are you going to try to get better? Roy, I can't get I can't get better. I already made my decision. Okay, I don't see anything there that I would say is something that this lady should go to, to, to jail for. At this point, not a really good person. He's starting to see it come out. But hey, there's no malice. 
There's no forethought. There's no real intent, but you're starting to see it with, I kind of wish you would try and fail just so they'll make you get help. Well, how about instead of that, you just go, hey, this guy's talking about killing himself. That That's all you had to do, but no. July 23rd. 2014, Carter again discourages Roy from harming himself. Carter, how do you want to harm yourself? Something I don't know yet. Please don't. Uh, Roy, I hate myself. I always hate myself. I never, I'm never going to view myself as good, and I'm so far behind. Carter, what is harming yourself going to do? Nothing. It will make it worse. Roy, make my pain go away, just like you said. Carter, it will make the pain go away temporarily, but when you're done, you'll just regret it and feel even worse. Again, demonstrating she knows right from wrong. Yeah. Okay. July 7, 2014. Roy, if you were in my position, honestly, what would you do? Carter, I would get help. That's just me, though. When I have a serious problem like that, my first instinct is to get help because I know I can't do it on my own. Later that same day, Carter... Well, there's more ways to make CO2. Google ways to make it. Do you, do you get that? So now she goes from, you know, you should get help to, no, there's, there's more ways to make CO2. Google ways to make CO2. Okay? Roy says, oh, my God. Carter says, what? Roy says, portable generator. That's it. Okay. Okay. At this point, I see a shitty person doing shitty things, but I'm not yet willing to say that I would convict her if he ends up killing himself. I think she would certainly be liable for it in some sort of civil matter at this point, not notifying. I'm not sure exactly where I would fall down with the legal status when it comes to criminal law here. Okay, Now, it starts to go way downhill from here. July 8th, Carter, so are you sure you don't want to kill yourself tonight? Roy, What do you mean, am I sure? Carter, like, are you definitely not doing it tonight? Roy, I don't know yet. I'll let you know. Carter, because I'll stay up with you if you want to do it tonight. Another Roy says another day wouldn't hurt. Carter says, you can't keep pushing it off, though. That's all you keep doing. Okay. At this point, I think we already see malice aforethought. I think we see intent for her to talk this kid into actually killing himself. At this point, I'm already on board with some sort of criminal penalty here. But let's keep going. July 11, 2014. Carter, well, in my opinion, I think you should do the generator because I don't know much about the pump, and with the generator, you can't fail. July 4 through 12, 2014. Here's a series of messages set over a span of nine days. Carter, quote, you're going to have to prove me wrong because I just don't think you really want this. You keep pushing it off for another night and say you'll do it, but you never do. Carter, see, and this is all in caps, see, that's what I mean. You keep pushing it off. Then back to regular text. You just said you were going to do it tonight, and now you're saying eventually. Carter, but I bet you're going to be like, oh, it didn't work because I didn't tape the tube right or something like that. I bet you're going to say an excuse like that. Carter, Do you have a generator yet? Roy, not yet. Carter, well, when are you getting it in all caps? Carter, you better not be bullshitting me and saying you're going to do this and then purposefully get caught. July 11 through and 12, 2014. Roy, 
I'm just too sensitive. I want my family to know there was nothing they could do. I'm entrapped in my own thoughts. Roy, like, no, I would be happy if they had no guilt about it because I have a bad feeling that this is going to create a lot of depression between my parents and sisters. Roy, I'm overthinking everything. Uh, fuck, I gotta stop it and just do it. Carter says, right, you, you gotta put yourself in this position, right? This guy is dumping. Like, I'm worried about my family. He's giving himself reasons not to do it. This is what she says. I think your parents know you're in a really bad place. I'm not saying they want you to do it, but I honestly feel like they can accept it. They know there's nothing they can do. They've tried helping. Everyone's tried. But there's a point that comes where there isn't anything anyone can do to save you, not even yourself. And you've hit that point. And I think your parents know you've hit that point. You said your mom saw a suicide thing on your computer, and she didn't say anything. I think she knows it's on your mind, and she's prepared for it. Okay, you're a sick bitch. Okay, this is a point where the anarchist comes out in me, right? And, and, and I'm going to go off script of just defining this within the legal system for just a second. At this point, if somebody puts a chain around this girl's neck and a, and a, a cinder block on it and throws her in the ocean, I'm not going to cry about it. I'm not saying anybody should do it, but I am saying I'm not going to cry about it. Like, oh, she's dead. Okay, good. That's one less shitty person in the world. Okay. Carter. Everyone will be sad for a while, but they'll get over it and move on. They won't be in depression. I won't let it happen. They know how sad you are, and they know that you're doing this to be happy. And I think they will understand and accept it. They will always carry you in their hearts. Next conversation, Roy, I don't want to hurt anyone in the process, though. I mean, when they open the door, all the carbon monoxide is going to come out. They can't see it or smell it, whoever opens the door. Carter says, they will see the generator and know you died of CO. Don't worry about it, just do it, okay? Roy says, next conversation, hey, can you do me a favor? Carter says, yes, of course. Roy, just be there for my family. Carter Conrad, of course I will be there for your family. I will help them as much as I can to get through this. I'll tell them about how amazing their son and brother truly was. <sighs> Roy, I don't know. I'm freaking out again. Roy, I'm overthinking. Carter, I thought you wanted to do this. The time is right and you're ready. You just need to do it. You can't keep living this way. You just need to do it like you did last time and not think about it. And just do it, babe. You can't keep doing this every day. Roy, I do want to, but like I'm freaking out for my family, I guess. I don't know. Carter, Conrad, I told you I'll take care of them. Everyone will take care of them and make sure they won't be alone and people will help get them through it. We talked about this. They will be okay and accepted. People who commit suicide don't think this much. They just do it. Okay. July 12, 2014. In these exchanges on the day before his body was found, Roy expresses more hesitation about his plan. Carter, so I guess you aren't going to do it then. All that for nothing. Carter, I'm just confused like you. We're so ready and determined. Roy says, I am going to eventually. I really don't know what I'm waiting for, but I have everything lined up. Carter, no you're not, Conrad. Last night was it. You just keep pushing it off. And you say you'll do it, but you never do. It was going to be that way if you don't take action. It's always going to be that way if you don't take action. Carter says, you're just making it harder on yourself by putting it off. You just have to do it. Carter says, do you want to do it now? Roy says, it's too late. 
Roy, I don't know. It's already light outside. Roy, I'm going to go back to sleep. Love you. I'll text you tomorrow. Carter, no, it's probably the best time now because everyone's sleeping. Just go somewhere in your truck and no one's really out right now because it's an awkward time. Carter, if you don't do it now, you're never going to do it. Carter, and you say you'll do it tomorrow, but you probably won't. Carter, you just need to do it, Conrad, or I'm going to get you help. I want to hold right there for a second. If you don't kill yourself, I'm going to tell somebody that you're thinking about killing yourself. So this guy's probably, that's like his biggest worry is someone forcing him to get help. She just used that as a weapon, as far as I'm concerned. Let me go back to this. You can't keep doing this every day, Carter says. Roy, okay, I'm going to do it today. Carter, do you promise? Roy, I promise, babe. I have to now. Carter, like where, like right now? Roy, where do I go? Carter, and you can't break a promise and just go in a quiet parking lot or something. Now, that's where this, I have this article linked in the show notes for you guys, so you can read all this for yourself. I can't find the, the final text messages, but I know what they are. I can't find them online so I can, I can read them verbatim, but, but he gets in the car, he gets this generator going and runs a hose into the, his truck, closes it all up, and he starts to feel like he's falling out. He said, he's texting her and says he's freaking out. He, he says, I got out of the truck. I got out of the truck. She tells him what? Get back in. Get back in. I, I, I say to you, if you think that's thought crime, you're an idiot. Because you no longer can claim ignorance. If you didn't know how much there was, that's how much there was. This isn't like this girl sent him a couple text messages saying, I think you should kill yourself. This was a guy calling out for help. And she's like, here's how to do it. Here's how to find the information. Oh, you started doing it and you're going to stop now? Oh, don't let me call the police or anything. Just, just get back in a truck. Now, what we can debate, what kind of crime is it? Again, under the current criminal justice system, because that's what we have. We don't have an anarchy. We don't have a stateless society. We have a republic in the form of an oligarchy, right, with laws and, and, and rules that are going to be followed by the court system. So what was she convicted of? She was convicted of involuntary manslaughter. I find this to be not sufficient. I don't think this is sufficient enough for the crime. Involuntary manslaughter is defined as the crime of killing another human being unlawfully but unintentionally. You did something illegal that caused the death, but you didn't intend for anybody to die. That's involuntary manslaughter. An example would be, an example would be, You drive really, really fast. Someone walks out in front of you. You're unable to stop your vehicle in time and, and you tend to hit them and run them over. Looking at the, the, the specifics of the case, if you had been driving the speed limit or even moderately over it, the person would probably still be alive. However, since you were doing 100 miles an hour, it was physically impossible for you to stop, so you didn't intend to kill them. But your reckless behavior caused their death. That's text. That is not what happened here. I think the, the minimum crime that was committed here would be voluntary manslaughter. That is the crime of killing another person unlawfully in circumstances that do not amount to murder, for example, without premeditation. Ah, wait a minute. We're back to murder, right? But let me read the rest of the law because if I'm going to cite law, I have to cite it properly. Or as a result of mitigating circumstances such as diminished responsibility. 
This is why I think you can make a case that it's not murder, it would be voluntary manslaughter. Because I think in the end, and this is what everybody's saying that's trying to defend this idiot bitch, right? In the end, he made the final decision. But she led him there. Right? And, and when you say shit like, well, it's, it's a slippery slope. Hold on. That's what we call a fallacy. The slippery slope fallacy is a fallacy. It is a textbook fallacy. This, this is not, again, this isn't some girl that wrote a blog post and said, I wish this guy would kill himself. I don't even think, like, so if somebody does that and you kill yourself, I don't think it's their fault. This was wanton, willful manipulation of a hurting person to the point where they actually killed themselves with a personal relationship. And let me tell you something. It was more than text messages. We just don't know the rest of it. Let me put on top of this. Her defense was never, I didn't think he would really do it, and we were fighting or something like that, or I didn't actually want him to do it. Her defense was, doing this is not murder. Doing this is not a crime. It's okay to do this. And let me end with this on this segment. If you think this woman should not be in, in, in prison for what she's done, then you better get a big-ass sign and start walking around that says, Free Charlie Manson. Charlie Manson never killed anybody, didn't put a hand on anybody. He told other people to do it, and they did. He manipulated them into taking lives of others. Right? So, if it's a slippery slope, the slope ain't slipped much since the 1960s to 2017, has it? This, again, is specific. This is an absolute specific thing that was done with, I believe, malice aforethought. I believe she wanted him to do it. Now, you might make the case that there's something mentally wrong with her. I agree. But if we're going to be legal in our intent here, right, the, the condition where someone is basically sent to a mental ward versus a prison in our legal system is not where they mentally ill. It was, were they able to discern right from wrong? Were they able to discern it? Well, I think her own text messages show that she was able to discern right from wrong because she knew what the right solution was. But in the end, she used the threat of the right solution to push him the last bit over the edge. If you don't, I will tell people, bitch, you should have told people. This, this cannot be acceptable in society. Now here's, the, to me, the ultimate travesty. Not only did she only actually get 15 months, 15 months, you know, it's like 15 to 25 or something, like 15 to 25 months, not years, right? 15 to 25 months. She's not even in prison right now. She's not even in jail. The judge said there will be a rep uh, an appeal. It could overturn your case, and cases can be overturned, but jail time cannot. So she's free until her appeal is completed in the state of Massachusetts. And he said, once it's done in Massachusetts, if, if it doesn't get overturned, you go back, you're going. You're not, you're not sitting it out while, uh, while it goes to the Supreme Court or something like that. But within the Massachusetts court system, she's free until such time as the appeals court rules on this. Now, what the hell other person is afforded this? Well, Mr. Spierko. Uh, even though you've been convicted, I know you'll be appealing, 
And should we find out in your appeal that we've wrongfully convicted you, we, we can't give you back the time you've served, so you just don't have to go to jail or prison until your appeal's done. I've never even heard of this before. And, and I find this to be a travesty of justice. A travesty of justice. There's no justice here. And again, those of you that say, well, you're supposed to be an anarchist, Jack. You're supposed to be a voluntarist. You don't... Listen, I'm going to put it to you this way. This is how I view the court system and the prison system. If you're somebody like, let's say, a child molester, I would happily throw you into a wood chipper. But I can't do that. They won't let me. So if the court system and the prison system is what I have available to deal with you with right now, that's where you should go. Now, what do I think this woman should really be serving? Probably at least five to ten. Five to ten, and she should be getting mental counseling as well. Because I do believe there's a mental screw loose in this woman. But there's mental screw looses in a lot of people that do a lot of vicious things. I think this was voluntary manslaughter by the strict definition of the words voluntary manslaughter under a legal code, which is the crime of killing another person unlawfully in circumstances that do not amount to murder, for example, without premeditation or as a result of mitigating circumstances such as diminished responsibility. I will definitely accept that there is a diminished responsibility because in the end, he had to choose to do it. But she knew exactly what she was doing. This is not thought crime. Again, you can debate what level of crime it is. Or you can even try to debate that it's not a crime. But to call it thought crime is freaking bullshit. Anyway, with that, I know it took a lot of time on that. But man, you know, just to see smart people saying stupid shit like that, It, it bugs me, and, and I wanted to make sure that you at least were not willfully ignorant, that you were fully informed, and if you wanted an idiotic position, you could take one with full knowledge of how idiotic it was. All right, next, what a great story to follow this up with. Um, cops busted trying to sell innocent elderly woman's car after telling her they needed it for evidence. Why do you hear this? And I'll tell you why it's a bigger problem than it even sounds like when we look at it in totality. Pueblo, Colorado, when an 80-year-old woman's car was stolen in June and then recovered by police, she had no idea that it would be stolen once again, but this time by the same group that claimed to be helping her get the car back in the first place. The Ford Crown Victoria, owned by Mary Antrim and her husband Clyde, was initially stolen from their residential neighborhood in Pueblo, Colorado on a, from, during a robbery on June 1st, uh, according to a report from KOAA News. Uh, I need my car for my doctor's appointments That's that I have to go to, Miss Antrim said. That's my transportation, and I'm 80 years old. I'd like to have my car back so I can do what I have to do. The car was discovered 45 miles away on June 5th after police responded to reports of an aggravated robbery at, robbery at a Dillard's in Colorado Springs. Miss Antrim told the local NBC affiliate that she told her car that she was told her car was being impounded and was on hold while police fully investigated the robbery. They told me it was involved in a robbery and it was being held for evidence, and that's all I was told, Miss Antrim said. I've called them every week to find out where the car is at and what's going on with it. No one has called me back. After more than a month of calling and receiving no answers, Antrim said she began searching online, and she found out that not only were police not planning to return her car, they were planning to sell it in auction. Quote, I was dumbfounded, Antrim said. I thought, how in the world can the car go from being on hold for evidence, and now it's on hand, and being ready to go to auction? I couldn't believe that. 
KOAA News reported that Colorado Springs police, quote, refused to address the situation on camera or provide a formal comment, end quote, and instead claimed that Miss Antrim, they sent Miss Antrim a letter on July 7th, which stated, quote, her vehicle was at CSPD impound lot and charges had accumulated as a result of being impounded. Now, <laughs> the letter claimed that if Antrim did not claim the vehicle, it would be sold at an auction on September 11th. However, while Colorado Springs police insisted the letter was mailed on July 7th, KOAA News noted that it was not postmarked until July 11th, the same day the reporters contacted the department. Oh, we, we sent it on July 7th, but yeah, it's postmarked the 11th. It's just a coincidence that it's the same day that you guys ratted us out, okay? Investigative reporters from KOAA also noted that while they, quote, filed an open records request for any phone call records, if any, showing how many times Colorado Springs police or the CSPD impound lot called Mrs. Antrim about her vehicle prior to putting it on uh, a, seven, a September 2017 auction list, end quote, they have yet to receive any information other than the formal notice that the request was received. Well, we've we received your request. We're just going to ignore it. See, the thing about that is an open records request. You don't get to decide you don't want to respond to that. You don't get to not provide the records. If you're not going to, there has to be some sort of sensitive nature or something. And that has to be actually, like, you can challenge that, and a court will rule whether or not that's the case. Would it really be dangerous for this? There's no way this is dangerous to be released. This is bullshit. This is them trying to hide their ass. Back to the article. As soon as Colorado Springs police realized they wouldn't get away with auctioning off Miss Antrim's car without a fight, they still attempted to make a profit off it by insisting that she need to pay $178 for the fee to have the car impounded, something the police insisted on in the first place. Okay. Now, do I believe that, a, that, a, that they might do some shit like that, like as policy? Sure I do. Except, <laughs> it wasn't even policy, because back to the article. However, KOAA News noted that this fee was the exact opposite of the policy Sergeant Garza mentioned over email. Poor email, shit, you can't make that go away, can you? <laughs> Unless you're Hillary. Anyway, which stated, quote, it is the policy of the Colorado Springs Police Department that victims of crimes whose vehicles are towed as part of a criminal investigation will not be charged tow impound storage fees while at the impound facility, end quote. Again, that's in black and white. kind of sucks for the police there. Right? Okay. Following the report from KOAA News, Mary Antrim received another notice that her car would be returned and she would not be forced to pay any fees. While Colorado Springs police may act as if everything is fine now and the car is returned, the fact is that their department attempted to take advantage of an 80-year-old woman after she was the victim of a robbery by stealing her car once again, ignoring her pre repeated requests for information, and then attempting to extort money from her after they realized they wouldn't get away with auctioning off her vehicle. Holy shit. Now, I'll tell you why this is, and I'm not going to go long on this one, because I think it speaks for itself. But the reason this is a bigger thing than it sounds, tell me about a few bad apples again, really? Do you realize how many people touched this? And everybody was okay with screwing this old lady? Now look, Leos, listen to me. I'm seriously reaching out to you here. No one that's sane and mentally healthy anyway believes the majority of police officers are scumbags. What we do know is there's more than a few of them. You guys know it too, and you won't stand up and say something. 
if you, because I hear cops all the time, you know, we used to be respected, we want our respect, you know, we work hard, we protect and serve, blah, 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 blah. Fine. You will never get the public back because the cameras and the recorders and the technology is never going away. It's going to get worse from here. All of this shit is going to get put out in public. The public will know how much of it is going on. The only way law enforcement will ever win back the people is to form an organization and stand up apart from your individual departments, etc., and say, I will speak up when I see something. I will not hide it. I will not see the thin blue line as a reason to protect another officer who is violating a citizen's rights and breaking the law himself. I won't do it. And when I see something like this happen, I will speak vehemently against it. I will not say, oh, we don't want to air our dirty laundry. I will say this is wrong. And until that, and it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen anytime soon. It's going to have to get a lot worse. It's going to, and it's going to get a lot worse. And it's going to continue to get worse until at some point, you guys are going to have to do it. You're going to have to. Eventually, you'll reach the same conclusion. I'm telling you, it's going to have to happen. It is the only way that people are going to help you again, and you need people to help you. I don't trust law enforcement anymore. I have cop friends that I love as brothers, but I wouldn't trust them if I didn't know them individually. How about that? Even though I do know them, if I didn't know them, if I didn't have a personal relationship with them, I would not trust them. The same person, just to be clear. Because I think there is such an innate culture in law enforcement to protect each other that you're putting the needs of the officer next to you above the needs of the citizen that you're supposed to serve. I have been lied to my face by police officers. I have had cops lie to my face. And that broke a trust. And I was the guy that when I saw a vehicle that wasn't supposed to be in my neighborhood called 911 and blocked them from getting out of a driveway. And now I feel like I can't trust the police. Not I can't trust all police. Not I can't trust all cops. There's enough that I can't trust that I don't know who to trust. And I'm telling you honestly what America's feeling right now, and you don't want to hear it. But here's the thing. Whether you want to hear a truth or not, it's still true. And whether you pay attention to it or not, it's still true. And what you guys have in law enforcement right now is a, is a, is a pay, the, the whole, think of the whole industry, is a patient with tumors that are metastasizing. And until you start cutting some tumors out, the patient's going to get a lot more sick. And in this case, what it means is losing respect and losing trust. Because you can't do your jobs without citizens trusting you. There's more of us than there will ever be of you. And you need our help. And at this point, in a lot of situations I look at, if I knew something, I wouldn't say shit. Because I don't want to be drug into it and all of a sudden become part of your investigation even though I had nothing to do with it. Well, it won't happen. It happens all the time. Apparently, we can't even trust law enforcement, at least in some locations, to return our property to us after it's been stolen. Because it's money. I, I don't know how much they were going to get from the, for the car, but I'm sure it was more than 175 bucks that they wanted for impoundment fees. It's sad, but it's up to you guys. It, 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 and I hear it all the time. All you do is bash cops. I hear it on Facebook. You're constantly bashing cops. Bullshit. I post good shit about police whenever I see it. But I also post the bad shit. 
I'm not going to pretend it's not there. That's the problem. And the problem isn't the public pretending it's not there. It's you guys in your own community pretending it's not there. The next time you feel the words coming out of your mouth or to your keys in defense of shit like this with a few bad apples, really think about that phrase. Really think about that phrase. What happens when you leave the one bad apple in the barrel? I'll leave it there. Let's go on to another one. Something completely different and get on to happier topics. Maybe happier. Maybe it's my, uh, maybe it's like the, the, the end of my business or something, right? Um, this is, this is an interesting question and, um, I'll, I'll give my best stab at it. Uh, let's see. Uh, Scott says from Fort Worth, Jack Tradamus, Jack plus Nostradamus. I think it's Spiracodamus was what, uh, Ron Hood used to call me. Um, I, I don't really, Push that monk here, though. I think I get a lot of things right because I pay attention is all. Uh, Jackster Thomas, what do you think will happen to talk media when self-driving cars become the norm? Details. I, for one, and suspect many others, only listen to talk media, be it radio, podcast, audible, etc., only when I'm driving. I see self-driving cars become the norm. Our attention can be directed elsewhere, such as reading, working, playing games, or watching TV. Will talk media see a sharp decline in listenership when self-driving cars really take off? Scott, I don't think it'll be good for the industry. I, I don't know if it'll go away, but now let's look at some reality. Like I think you can't go around using words like confirmation bias and perception bias if you're not willing to use them on themselves, on yourself. This is how I make my living. I make my living by talking. And teaching people, educating people, inspiring people, uh, dissecting things that the mainstream media won't. But I am not immune to the changes in technology. And I can tell you that I know a lot of people who listen to this show religiously, daily, until such time as the message actually worked on them. They started a business, and they don't spend much time in their car anymore, and they don't tend to listen anymore. So that happens. Now, I personally like to believe that if you're really good at what you do, you're really good at what you do, and your, your product, your, your, your talk radio type product, truly entertains and inspires that people will keep listening. And I, I'll kind of note on that, I know an awful lot of kids that don't drive that love audiobooks. Freaking, I almost know the entire Harry Potter uh series because my son had tape that's back in the day right that's how old my kid is old enough my kid had cassette tapes right you know you're talking to an old fart when he's like well my son used to have cassette tapes right so my son used to have cassette tapes ah, back in the aughts right anyway my son had cassette tapes and he and he had all of them for the harry potter series and he listened to those things every night when he went to bed Well, even if he fell asleep in like five minutes, the tape, you know, each side of the tape was like 45 minutes long or hour long. I think they were one hour tapes because they're long. You know, he had whole sets of them. That thing would just play and play and play. And inevitably, no matter how asleep he was, if I went in there and turned it off, he'd wake up. So I just let it run. I just hear that thing going in there. Oh, so I think like my buddy David, his kid is like addicted to audiobooks. I have a lot of people that say they listen to me while they're at the gym or while they're walking. So I think that. I think that there is still a market for audio outside of the car. However, I think the car is a tremendous niche for audio marketers. And, and, to, and you're like, well, audio marketers, they're all audio marketers. 
Rush Limbaugh is a modi, uh, an audio marketer. Sean Hannity is an audio marketer. Glenn Beck is an audio marketer. They're marketing themselves or they're marketing their ideas. The DJ that just plays music and talks shit about what's going on and, and tells funny stories and stuff like that, has the morning show that you listen to, he's an audio marketer. That's what we, that's what we really do. We market our audio, no matter what it is. So I would, I would bet that the majority of people that listen to the show do so in the car. However, I know that people listen in various locations other than the car. Uh, I said one time something like, just because you, now I'm, I'm, you're going to laugh, so I don't want to repeat. So if you're doing something right now that's dangerous, take a break, okay? If you, if you haven't heard it before, you'll laugh anyway. So one time I was talking about, like, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Like, you could stick your penis into a beehive and smack the top, but that doesn't mean you should. And a guy wrote me and said he was on a roof with a circular saw, and he almost cut his thumb off because he was listening to me when I said that while he was using his saw. Um, so I know that, like, you know, again, people that, that, that garden and listen and stuff like that. Um, I was actually surprised when I met Jessica Mills, Dixie Mills, uh, who I had on the show as a guest who through hiked the Appalachian Trail, that said, you know, she had a couple of times where she'd be walking the trail and come across other hikers and hear my voice. And apparently, like, listening to Jack Spirico while you walk the Appalachian Trail is a thing. Uh, my buddy David, who I mentioned often, said that he was out in the, like, out by, like, White Sands Missile Range, I think, in New Mexico. And he's hiking, like, 10 miles from a road. And he's, he kind of comes up on some folks that have, like, a little campfire or whatever. But as he's coming up, he's like, that's Jack. Like, what the hell is Jack doing here? And they were listening to me sitting around a fire out in the middle of White Sands. So, you know, and I don't think I'm the biggest thing in podcasts. I really, I'm not. I mean, there's podcasts that dwarf everything that I do. I don't know that they know how to make any money with what they do, but they dwarf me. They, they really do. And, you know, there's people that are just starting their podcast now that will eventually dwarf me. I'm in a pretty tight niche, really. Um, and that's good because you can, you know, anchor down on that niche. But I think if people listen to me, then they'll listen to these other people. Now, does that mean that more and more people might have to go the video route? I think maybe so, but maybe not. I mean... I actually like YouTube videos that I don't really need to watch. Because I'll tell you when I listen to a lot of stuff. I listen to a lot of stuff when I'm working, but I'm not really doing something I have to steady concentrate on. And I'll pull up a YouTube video, and if it's about a subject that I don't really need to watch it, I'll minimize that window or I'll open another tab and I'll be doing my other tasks, taking that information in. And then if I hear them say something that I want clarification on, maybe I'll flip back to that tab and back it up. But I think that we're going to have to evolve our technology. Because I've always believed, and it's part of why I did it, that the most powerful marketing tool on the planet, as of right now, is audio. Because it is the one media that you can consume while doing something else. You can't really consume video and really do something else at the same time. Now, people constantly say, well, I work on my computer while I'm watching TV. No, you're consuming audio. And you're occasionally checking out video. If you're looking at your computer screen and typing, and you have Fox News on, you're consuming the audio portion. This is why tapes were such a great marketing tool in like the 80s, the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And people would spend thousands and thousands of dollars to make 500 tapes that they could mail to people. Because they would stick it in that, that tape deck and listen to it in their car. And it does come back to that. So I think it's going to hurt the market. 
And the market itself will have to be creative about how we respond to it. Now, I would say that the good news for people like myself is we're probably 10 years away from that really starting to hurt us. Like on that curve of how, how this advancing technology will begin to hurt you, we're quite a ways out. We might even be more like 15. I mean, we are not going to see you know, 80% self-driving vehicles in the next 10 years. The first thing we're going to see is autonomous delivery vehicles. That is the first place they're going to go because drivers are expensive in that market. The, the first really sophisticated stuff is going to be trucks. It's going to be trucks and Uber-type services as well. And I think that long-term, that actually will become, I think most of the autonomous vehicles will probably be for, you know, let's say for 20 years, more of commercial-type vehicles that give people the option of I don't really need a second car. Because I can just summon an Uber and it'll come get me. I, I think I, as far as the impact of this, I'm a little bit more concerned for the Uber driver than the audio uh, person in the next 10 years. Over the next 20, poof, we are definitely going to have to adapt. We're not immune. Interesting question, Scott. I appreciate you sending that one our way. Oh, real quick, I didn't have this in the lineup, but I see it here in my inbox as I was going through the different emails for this show, and it's a quick one, and I, I wanted to get it on the show, and I guess I missed it. This comes from Dan. It's a comment on the blog, and it's in reference to the thing that I talked about last week with person that called in and said, should I press charges or seek restitution? Um, and I had some questions about restitution. This is what Dan, who is a law enforcement officer, says. Restitution is paid to the courts, and then the courts send it to the victim. As a parole agent, I have had victims call me and complain the offender is not paying their restitution. Fines and costs are in addition to restitution. It can actually be more depending on what was taken. Supervision fees can also be charged if on probation or parole, as my co-host uh, continues to uh, charm us with her uh, disapproval at me not paying attention to her. And for those that have written in and mentioned that you hear her from time to time, that is my granddaughter, Tegan, who is here with us most week, three days a week uh, during the summer and five days a week when school starts again, which apparently is going to be very soon. Anyway, so it, it does seem like there is some restitution in our criminal justice system that repays the individual. Um, fines and costs are in addition to restitution. It can actually be more depending on what was taken. So... That is interesting. The, 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 the state would get more money than the victim. That doesn't actually surprise me very much. But it's good to know that there is some level of restitution in our criminal justice system. And again, as I said before, I think in, in most instances, that's where it should start. It should start with, let's make the victim of the crime whole, because again, it leads us back to, well, who, who's the victim? Yeah, that, that's, one of the, that's one of the best things I think about that. Like, if the primary goal of law enforcement is restitution to the victim, and the state is not the victim, right? You can't claim that like some arbitrary thing is a victim, right? So then you have to like focus on the crimes with victims above the crimes that are victimless. You have to, if that's the primary goal. And I think that would be a noble goal for law enforcement, getting the victim whole again. And again, I think that if you've taken something from me, that you are on the hook to me for more than just the flat value of that thing or just that thing. Because then there's no incentive for you not to do it again. Now, of course, you can say there's jail time and fines and fees and super... And I understand making people pay for their own supervision. I'll totally get that. And I, I, I can tell you what. The, the profession that would actually expand in a stateless society, 
They would probably call it something else, but it would be like parole probation officer type duty. And you can bet your ass that that's how that system, a private justice system would work. You would pay for your own supervision and you would pay restitution. And I, I think that it, it would probably be a lot better. But I'm, I'm glad to hear that at least there's some of that. So thanks for writing that in, Dan. Oh, another little side note. Um, I had a, a Cutco knife question about a week ago. And I mentioned that I actually found shun knives to be superior to Cutco knives and not cost much more, even for the premium uh, level shun knives. But one of the nice things about Cutco was that they do actually free knife sharpening. You send your knife in, they'll sharpen it for you. Apparently shun does this too. And you can go to the shun website and find on their warranty page also knife sharpening. They charge just for basically the shipping to sharp your knives. So they do the sharpening part for free. So a little update on shun knives there. Uh, next question is from John. We've got a gun question today from Colorado. John says, question, would you consider buying a Marlin 1895-4570 that does not have the JM stamp on it? Details, I'm considering buying a Marlin 1895-4570 lever gun. I've been thinking of getting a lever gun for some time and found what seems to be a pretty good deal on this one. $400 includes some animal plus dies and bullets for reloading. I'd be using it for elk and deer hunting and just for fun. Lever guns are fun. Many feel that the pre-2007 JM stamp Marlins made in Connecticut are more desirable because they were actually made before Remington took over Marlin. The Marlin forum folks feel anything since 2007 is complete junk, but maybe they're being kind of snobbish about it. I just don't know what to think here. Do you have any thoughts on Marlins manufactured post-07? Um, actually, I do. And I have something that I think many of the Marlin snobs would not want to hear. The years that I don't want to buy a Marlin from are up to about two years before the buyout and about two years after the buyout. And that would be something you don't look for a JM stamp with. That's something you'd look to serial numbers to tell you the year that it was manufactured. By the way, if you have a Marlin stamp JM, that in of itself does not guarantee that your gun was completely made in the Marlin Connecticut factory. That is a myth. It's not true. And you might say, well, Jack, why do you have this opinion? I have this opinion because I love Marlins. I love Marlins enough that You know, I actually know people that have worked for Marlin, actually building Marlin firearms. And this is pretty much the story I've gotten from all of them that are honest anyway. The quality problems at Marlin began a few years before the Remington buyout. And they really peaked about two years before the buyout. And one of the excuses given by some defending that were, well, once they knew they got their notices, and, and, and these people that were honest with me said, hey, before anybody knew this was coming, We had quality problems that started to slip. And I think it took Remington a couple of years to get their shit together and fix it. But this would be the, this would be the question I have for anybody that says, well, you know, Marlin made today is just crap. It's complete garbage. You have to get a pre-2007, considering how many freaking production issues existed in 2006. I think you're full of shit. But I just would ask you this question. So does Remington make junk guns? Does Remington make junk guns? Or is Remington known as an excellent manufacturer of firearms? I'm serious. You know, how many people really put down guns like the Model 7 and the Model 700? How many people consider them junk? The 1100 semi-auto shotgun. Well, one of the, one of the, the premier, the 870. Now, 
Remington didn't have a whole lot of experience with lever guns. I think it's one of the things that attracted them to Marlin because, as John says, lever guns are fun. But, but here's the reality. Even when there were quality issues, they're still good guns. They had problems, tooting problems and things like that. I had one that I got back in, oh, it would have been 2002. So before the quality issues, supposedly, were there. 44 Magnum. Seemed great, locked up great, everything seemed great. Fired just fine. Didn't feed worth a shit. When you racked that lever and you went to come up with it, it would grab that shell to the point of some of them, not only would it feed roughly, but it would put dents in the, in the cartridge side. And you know what I did? I sent it to Marlin and said, hey, jerks, I just paid a lot of money for this thing. Fix it. They sent it back, and it, 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 it ran like something that was customized for cowboy action shooting. It was like silk. Which means they totally could have done that out of the box, but they failed. That's quality control, and I think that's the problem that Marlin had. It wasn't design flaws. It wasn't poor materials. It was attention to detail, and I would say that any Marlin that you get your hands on, if it has some feeding issues or something, can be tuned up and be just fine. And if that leads somebody to sell it for half of what it's worth... And you can still send it to now Remington under the Marlin name and get get those types of issues taken care of, and you can, then that's an opportunity. Um, I, I just don't look at Remington and, and, and think, well, they're like High Point or something like that, which you can't even really kick High Point that hard if, if you, you know, judge them on what they're supposed to be. I, I, I just don't see anything that would prevent me from going out today and buying a brand new Marlin. I would really take a hard look at anything made from about 2003 to 2009, maybe even 2010. But I think what's coming off the line today is damn solid shit. Damn solid shit. And, again, I still think, like, the big thing I would do is whoever's selling it to you, I want to put some shells in this thing and rack them. I want to fire it, just want to rack them. It's not safe. Keep your gun. Keep your gun, because there's no way I'm going to know if this thing feeds right until I do that. And I do believe there's quite a few of them out there because they feed rough. Again, it's like a $10 service fee to send the damn thing in, and they take care of it. So that's an opportunity. But I'd want to know that's what I'm dealing with. I don't want to not know that. So that, that would be my biggest thing to look at. That's the biggest thing that I've seen. And people talk about fit and finish. And when you look at that and see, you're buying a, a freaking hunting gun. These are not customs. You're not going to have perfect fit and finish on a gun like this. It, it, it's if you want to be a gun snob, I suggest you start looking at spending about five grand on your guns. When you're spending a few hundred to just under a thousand dollars on guns, you're not going to get custom level production. You're going to get production level production. Just my thoughts. Let's take another one. Okay, so I wanted to do just a brief follow up on my discussion about. Abervide trees last year or last week, last year, jeez um, not that far through the year yet, Jack, anyway so I basically was asked you know, about putting up trees as a noise screen, and I suggested kind of a multi-layered approach and going for your evergreens with, 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 with either firs or spruces, and that was because they're very inexpensive and they look pretty and they have some utility and then you mix hardwoods in with that and you know, you get a really great situation. Um, and I really didn't have a high opinion of these Abravati trees because whenever I've seen them, they look like these retarded stick things. 
Um, but I also said I don't really know much about them. I've never, other than seeing ornamentals, I don't really know. So, but I also looked them up. and They were like sixteen bucks a piece, and I'm like, man, you can, you can buy, you know, furs and and, and spruces for two, three bucks a piece. You know, a couple, you know, like one foot seedlings, and that just seems like it would be for a hugely dense planting, maybe the way to go. Well, Linda, who knows a lot more about abravidae trees than I do, apparently, uh, said the following about abravidae: abravidae is the standard poodle of American trees. And I read that and I went, oh, I know exactly where this is going. But I didn't know how far it was going to go. Most dog folks know that the standard poodle were once and can be excellent hunting dogs. But people bred them and clipped them to look stupid. Abravidae likewise. Useful, but made to look stupid. Also called northern white cedar, their uses include canoe making, fences, shingles, a high vitamin C tea, and medicine. In the wild, they have a fuller profile than hedge trees that you see pictures of. If you can keep the deer from stripping them, they are deer candy, tried Jack's method. Uh, they could be terrific contributor to mixed conifer or, conifer or shrub planting. Staggered like Jack describes. For anyone who lives in the right environment where they thrive, they make great homesteaders trees uh, with privacy function as a secondary benefit. And I, I, I didn't see it here, and I must admit, I had a couple of these that I'd put aside, and I can't find them all. Um, but somebody said you can buy them from Arbor Day Foundation for a couple of bucks a piece, too. Okay, well, I didn't know that changes things, too. And then on my spruce uh, tree recommendation, Nick sent me an email and pointed something out valid. He said, I love the show. I just wanted to say that I thought you should have offered one caveat on episode 2057 regarding tree planting for a noise barrier. Most spruce species are self-pruning after about 15 to 20 years. You're going to lose that visual audio barrier at the ground level. I live in New northern New England. I've seen overgrown spruce that was planted as a barrier that no longer serves its original purpose. Abervitae would serve much better as a barrier on a long time scale. I think the fact that spruce and fir saplings are so much cheaper actually makes them a better choice economically. Well, Linda just ruined that for me, didn't she? But they do need to be replaced every couple of decades. I agree with the advice you gave, but wanted to offer that spruce in particular does have different considerations from other evergreen plantings. Maybe that leads you more toward fir and back to abravidae. I, I think that might be the case. I appreciate that, Nick. So if you're planting you know, noise screen, apparently abravidae is a great tree to use for that. Um, basically, one of the other emails I couldn't find said if the, if the tree's just left to itself, you know, when it's one foot diameter of needles, there'll be a four inch um, trunk in there, and you can't stick your hand in and touch it. It's so damn dense. Uh, that sounds like a pretty good noise barrier. I do want to point out something else though with the noise barrier thing, and I got an email on this I can't find, but it was it's a valid statement I remember reading. The guy said the number one contributor to road noise is actually wheels on the ground, not engines, not air noise. It's, it's, it's friction from the tires hitting the road. And that means the majority of the noise is actually low level. So dense shrubs a lot of times will actually have a better effect on noise reductions than tall, big trees. I think that's valid, too. And that's, again, I'm back to a multi-layered system with, with, again, thinking like a firearm suppressor. You know, a firearm suppressor isn't a giant wall. It's a series of baffles, and that's why it works. Uh, so that's that's a suggestion that, you know, you could take uh, and, and add this new information to it. So I apologize 
for saying bad things about poor Abravati tree. Apparently it's a perfectly fine tree that people have treated like a poodle and screwed up. That seems to make a lot of sense, actually. Because nature generally doesn't screw up. I mean, other than the platypus, uh, yeah, you know, like what? What were you thinking? Other than that, you know, nature usually gets things pretty right. And just like magic, as I was ready to move on, I found one of the other emails, or actually blog comments on this that I wanted to read, so I'll go ahead and read it out. This is uh, by someone that on the blog calls themselves ILW, and it says, Abravati are the gold standard for sound barriers. I think Jack is underestimating their density. It's like a Christmas tree that's been sun sent through a tree baler. If properly pruned, you can't stick your arm through it to reach the trunk that's just 12 inches deep inside the tree. The insulative properties also make an ideal winter bird habitat as well, but it's extremely good at cutting noise and wind and creating a barrier to road trash. The Arbor Day Foundation has them for under four bucks. They should be spaced at 20 inches, so 60 trees per 100 feet should run you about $200. If you want to double their effectiveness, head to the car auctions and find yourself an old white black Ford Crown Victoria or an Interceptor and park it so just the headlights are sticking out of the bushes facing the road. Watch all the idiots slow down as they are conditioned to believe it's a speed trap. It's like a scarecrow for bad drivers. According to studies, at highway speeds, a five-mile-an-hour reduction in a busy road can cut noise by four decibels. You might even go as far as to report a speed trap or camera 1,000 feet before and after your property on Waze, the most commonly used navigation app by commercial drivers. It warns them well in advance to slow down when the big trucks slow down. Everyone does by necessity. I'm going to disagree with the forest advice for noise control. If done too densely, a canopy will eventually fill in and shade the ground, leaving lots of airspace between the canopy and the ground, stifling shrubs. If you've ever walked through a forest, you know echo of a deer by stepping on a twig can be heard clearly and loudly from one yard yards away. Forests are echo chambers, but only if you're inside of them, I will add. Uh, I think Jack has more recommending a savanna-ish style planting with layered shrubs and trees at different heights spaced out such that light can hit everything. That's absolutely right. That's exactly what I'm expecting. That's ideal, but the term forest was used and may conjure up the wrong image and lead to tree-dominated plan, which will work in the short term, but 15 to 20 years from now could make things worse. Also avoid fruiting trees in this case. You're on a highway. No, no, no sense in baiting deer near a busy road. Base case scenario, you have to remove a few rotting carcasses each year. Or maybe not rotting, I'm just saying. Uh, worst case, it may cause an accident on the road and hurt someone. Keep any fruiting trees well away from the road, 200 feet at least. Maybe even cut a path laid with clover and bordered by persimmon for the deer to get into the property and follow safely away from the road, letting out opposite side of the property. Yeah, they don't, deer don't work that way, dude. Sorry, man. That, that, that part, like you think you're going to build them a pathway with persimmon trees that only drop mass out of, like two months out of the year? No. Now, they do think persimmons are candy. I'll give you that, but no. Um, I, I think you, this is some sound advice, but, but what I you know what I got out of everybody, Abravite is deer candy. If you have deer problems, it just sounds to me like they're just going to strip the damn things. So, Because my method that was mentioned by the one was to put, basically you put a single electric wire around it, and you put some foil on it, put some peanut butter there, but, I mean, you're going to have to permanently maintain that because the reason you, that it works so well with trees is once you get them above browse level, you, you take it away. You know, it's not something you maintain long term, or maybe it's small and you put it around a, a garden. Uh, I, I don't know that that would really work well. So if you have a lot of deer in your area, uh, you know, 
I don't know, look around and see everybody else's Abravites. If they're not all grazed off, I'd go ahead and do it. If, if you know, they're all grazed like a poodle pop, you know, up to a certain level where the deer can't reach anymore, then I, I don't think they're going to work well. Because the one thing that, that I, LW was dead on about is the low-level noise. The noise comes in low. And shrubs, heavy shrubs, would be a really great way to go. Uh, we have a shrub around here called Red Tip that grows incredibly dense. I don't know what the proper name of it is. Everybody just calls them Red Tips. The problem is, like, at like 12, 15, 18 years, somewhere in there, it always depends, they just die. They just freaking die. They die. You see them all the time, they just die. You know, and then you have another three or four years to grow them back. So I, I wouldn't use that. But uh, more of a hedgerow, and I'm, again, like multi-layered, and yes, some space in between them. Yeah, I think that would be a really good way to go. Um, let's take another one. So this one is the one I think is the most challenging question that I have today. How would you define America the nation versus America the state? On episode 2009, on Revisiting Virtual Nations, you did a good job of dividing a state versus a nation. Nation equals people of like beliefs, values. I understand this. Your comment about believing in America the nation versus the state left me questioning, could I say something? Answer, no, because I can't define the nation yet, and you can't believe in something that has no definition. You having been through the thought process might help me start mine. The real question might better be stated, what is my nation? What is the group of people with whom I share beliefs, values, and ideals? I'm a behind on podcast, so if you've already dealt with this, I'll get there eventually. It might make the whole show. Uh, it, it might make a whole show. I'm going to try to do it in like 10 minutes or less here, uh, significantly less because the show's getting long as it always does on a Monday. Um, but this is what I say, like, I believe in the nation of America, but I have no allegiance to the state. I, I do feel that this is, to this day, right now, the best place to be in the world. There is not another state, right, nation state I would want to live in. And I believe that is not due to our government, not due to our state or our oligarchy or whatever. I believe it is due to our people. And I, I, unfortunately, I feel like culturally we are losing that with this anti-American sentiment that's focused not at the state where it belongs, but at the nation, the people themselves. I think the reason this nation has been so amazing is a few reasons, actually. But the primary one is that most of the people that are here either chose to came here, come here, or are descendants of people that chose to came to come here. I, I don't think and, and would have done anything to get here. This was the one place they wanted to be. They didn't run away from where they were as much as they ran to something they knew that was great. Because a lot of people could have run somewhere else if you just want to get away. I mean, do you know the number one place that people run to to get out of North Korea? China. Do you think that's a bastion of liberty and freedom? Why do they go there? They go there for a couple reasons. One, it's the most possible place to go. And if you've seen the DMZ, right? But get across that, 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 that demilitarized zone there, it ain't happening. I mean, it makes the Berlin Wall of the 1980s look like a day at Disneyland when you look at the DMZ. So what happens is the Yellow River, as any student of the Korean War knows, freezes in the winter where you can walk across it. 
We saw the Chinese came across it by you know, human wave attacks in the Korean conflict. And what people will do is they save up enough money to pay the soldier who's watching the area not to shoot them, and they run across the river into China. And they feel like they've found paradise when they go to China. But that's because it's the only place they could go. That's why they go there, because North Korea sucks so bad. There are a lot of people that came to America that had it pretty good where they were and sacrificed to come here. And I believe it is our ideals. Our ideals in this country, whether we have fulfilled them or not, are ideals. Remember, I'm a voluntarist. I want a stateless society. That is my ideal, but I'm also a pragmatist, and I deal with what we have. That's why I can do it, you know, I can look at and evaluate a legal situation like this, this, this scumbag that talked this mentally ill man into killing himself. And I can do it at that level because I'm willing to accept that's what we have. Right? So we have this attempt to live up to these ideals. My problem with my, my state is I believe it's counter to those ideals. What are the ideals that are America? The nation, not the state. Freedom. That is the number one ideal. Just because the state has turned it into conditioned marketing does not make it invalid. They chose to do that because it's so powerful. The main ideal of America is freedom, and not just freedom like you're not going to go to jail. Freedom to do and be whatever you want to be. Now, you would say that that's a human ideal. Yes, but there, I don't know of any nation that is truly founded on that ideal. I think that we have a, 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 I think one of the other things, and you can talk about the blight of slavery all of you, all that you want. And people in a different time dealing with situations that were what they were. But if you look at the Declaration of Independence in the, in the, the, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, the concept really is that all men are equal. Today, that's like, oh yeah, of course. You don't realize, you do not realize what that statement meant. You, 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 at the time that it was made, you cannot get your mind around what saying that in a year like 1776 meant. People in the world just accepted things like royalty and hierarchy. And no, you were not equal to your ruler as a man. It was only white men that owned property. I don't care. It was nobody everywhere else. That, to me, is what America is. America, the nation. And when I served in the military, and I took my oath, I could not have articulated anything like I do now about this stuff. But I know in my 17-year-old my heart, when I took that oath, and I meant it, that's what I was swearing an oath to. I was not swearing an oath in my mind to this immaterial apparatus of state control, but to the ideals that that system was supposed to be protecting and defending. And I'll admit it, that system on some level does protect and defend those beliefs. It also destroys them on other levels. It's not just not perfect, it's way far from perfect. And our system isn't the best that we can have. You just said this is the best place to be. I did. 
I think a lot of the things that are legal controlled by our state right now, our nation is the greatest nation in the world today in spite of those things. Because as a people, we're just that good. We are. I don't think there's anywhere where children really believe I can be anything I want to be. That's what it is for me. Now, again, I am scared for my nation. Because I think I'm seeing for the first time generations of young people not believing that anymore. Not believing that anymore. Now, not believing the lies of just go to college and get a good job and you'll retire and it's worth taking all the day. That's fine. That doesn't change that you can be and do whatever you want. You tell me what you want to do. And I can probably show you how America is the number one place in the world to do that. There may be one or two things. I mean, I don't know. Or it may be harder here, but if you get it done, maybe it's still better here. A case in point, I, I know this friend of mine named Mike Case. And he worked for a lot of big companies. He was, he was actually a mentor to me in the world of marketing. He was, he was my boss when I was at Sage Telecom. And um, he told me about a friend of his that did really well during the tech bubble, right? Got into some company, don't remember what it was, got an assload of stock options, and it was one of the ones that made it, right? It, it, I think it eventually fell apart, but it made it, it went public, he got his money, and he got out and said, I'm done, I don't want anything to do with this. And he ends up sitting on like $30 million. And uh, he's like, I, I, I want to go different places in the world. And I think where he ended up landing was Singapore. I think it looked pretty damn good on $30 million in Singapore. And he has a business now, and it's basically an island, but it's not like an island you have to take a boat to. It's like an island that you, boy, the dogs and the kids today in the background, uh, but it's like an island you can walk across a bridge to get to, that type of thing, you know. And it's a few acres, and he's got a big piece of it cleared out, and he has a Frisbee golf course, right? And he's got, you know, it's, it's, it's either Singapore or Thailand. It's one or the other. So he's got some local girls that he's hired that they basically drive golf carts around with coolers full of beer. And while the guys are playing frisbee golf, they sell them beer out of the back of the thing. And he doesn't really have to do anything to be able to do that. Like, he's just like, I want to do that. And they're like, yeah, whatever. He has to bribe some people once in a while, inspectors and whatnot, but it's actually pretty easy. So, you know, think about a coastal island that you can drive a golf court on in America and how many environmental regulations and what kind of permit you need to sell alcohol and, you know, all of this stuff. It may be easier there. But I think if you actually got something like that done here, it would probably be more prosperous. I think he's doing it because he likes living there. And it's just something to do. He doesn't need the money. So, I mean, I think there are things that you could tell me, like, well, it would be easier to do there. And I think sometimes you think it would be easier And I think sometimes if you're a citizen of that country, it is easier. But as we've had feedback, a lot of times what you think is easy to do in another country, it's easy for them to do, but not you as a foreigner going there. I mean, people talk about U.S. immigration policy. Boy, you should look at the immigration policy of, like, Canada. You don't get in unless you speak French or English. I think in some, I think in some instances you have to speak both, right? And you have to have a skill that they need. You have to be able to do something that they don't currently have somebody doing, basically. And if you really want to see a rigorous immigration policy, look at Mexico's. That's tough as shit. Find out what happens if you go there illegally, too, by the way. Um, yeah, our immigration policy is pretty damn lapsed. 
So, again, I think it's just the best place to be. And I don't think it's because of our Congress. I don't think it's because of our president. I don't think it's because of how we elect them. Right? I Now, the, the Constitution was used to create the state. It is the contract. It is the, the founding document to the corporation that is the United States of America. The United States of America is a corporation. Legally, that's how it's structured, as a corporation. And the Bill of Rights placed limits on what that corporation can do. And I think that's been helpful to a degree. Not as much as it should have been, but to a degree. But the Declaration of Independence was an anarcho document. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Again, since we've learned this in school and it's just seen as logical and makes sense, and even if you are an atheist, those words should still make sense because endowed by your creator, if you believe that random chance and evolution was your creator, then you were endowed by your very existence with inalienable rights. And these things are self-evident. Yet to say that at the time that this nation declared its independence would have been seen as anarchy not just by the King of England, by the rest of the world. We were literally threatening the entire world order. You know, you talk about slavery in America. There were people that were slaves and serfs all over the world. Serfdom was still rampant. That's why, that's why people came back then. I can go to this place and chop some trees down and clear out a place. Mine? Shit, let me get on a boat. I mean, literally, that's how some people came here. Shit, I can, I can have land? It's mine? Oh, I'm out of here. I'm done. I'm gone. That's all I needed to hear. And I think that spirit lives in our people still. And I know you can watch troll videos where they go out to the beach and they ask a bunch of dumb bimbos on the 4th of July who we fought in the American Revolution, and they'll tell you Hitler. I know that. I know that there's a lot of stupid people here. But let me explain something to you, right? It's easy to get down on those stupid people, but the reality is they are the minority. They're very visible. They're amusing to laugh at. They make you sad. They make you laugh and cry at the same time, right? But if they were the majority, nothing would freaking work. Nothing would work. But you can't have people this stupid as your majority and have the functioning society that we have. And I want you to think about it. How many really super stupid people do you know? And in of itself, does not memorizing historical facts make one stupid? You know? It, 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 it's maybe more of an indictment of the public education system than it is the person's actual IQ. But I don't know. I mean, like I said, it's a challenging question. But to me, that's, that's what I mean by America when I say America the nation. Those ideals, those beliefs... And the fact that even though our system is completely corrupt, I mean, our system of government is completely corrupt. It's not corrupt in, like, the South America method of corruption. We have our own unique form of corruption in lobbyists in this country. I mean, it is, it is like, it is like God-level corruption. Right when you talk about like mafia level and God level when it comes to being a gangster, right? Like it's like a like a God mode in a video game level of corruption. It is so sophisticated. 
that a corporation can look like it wants to prevent regulation while writing regulations to regulate out its competition. And it's all completely legal. I mean, holy shit. If you want to talk about a way to make a country corrupt, that's a way to make a country corrupt. But yet, where would you go that's better? And you know me. I don't say that like, well, if you don't like it, then just leave. Blah, blah, blah. You're stupid. We're the best in the world. I, to me, the fact that that's true doesn't mean that we shouldn't complain or bitch and, and try to change what's wrong and point out things that are wrong. That's what the people that usually bring that objection up say. But I say when you're talking about it from an idealistic standpoint, like what should we really be trying to accomplish? I think trying to build a nation that lives up to the promise our nation was at its founding is, is what makes us truly a nation. It's what makes me still say I am an American. And I don't believe I'm an American just because of accident of birth. Jack, if you would have been born in France, you would be a Frenchman. Yeah, but I think that if you really believe in those ideals, and you really work and strive for them, and you're willing to do whatever it takes to have the most of them in your lives and in the lives of other people, then you're part of that nation of America because... I don't define myself as an American because of the borders I live within. Those borders are where the, the greatest opportunity is. Absolutely. But our friend Nick in Mongolia, who writes in all the time, living in Mongolia, doesn't make him a Mongolian. And I think there's people that have never been here, that in their hearts, they are members of this nation. This ideal. This thing that was started with an anarchist document. All men. Not some men. Not most men. All men. The fact that we didn't live up to it, and you can show people how, you, can, you don't have to convince me, doesn't make it less significant. It makes it more significant. That means there's still work to be done. And the fact that we got as far as we did, that means something. Don't think I don't love this nation just because I hate the state. You'd be doing me a disservice. If you want to dislike me for any reason or disagree with me for any reason, all I ask is that you truly understand my position. Then you can agree or disagree all you want. But I, there, I know there's people out there that just like think I'm an America basher, an America hater. I love America. God, I hate government. Because government is the, is the one that steals And government has made it comfortable for people to steal. You know, it's not actually comfortable to steal. Most people are pretty uncomfortable stealing. But it's amazing what happens when you say, well, all you got to do is back this and we'll do the stealing for you. That's when we move into the world of the state. Let's take another one. I'm going to go brief on this one. Um, have you ever eaten or do you know any good recipes for pronghorn? My father has always wanted to go on a guided pronghorn hunt in the western United States. This September, he and I are finally going to make it happen. We'll be spending four days hunting prong pronghorn in Wyoming. We're both decent hunters, but the majority of our large game hunting has consisted of white-tailed deer. Nothing is guaranteed, of course, but with the guide service, I think we each have a good chance of bringing home some meat. I'd like to have some idea what to do with it in the kitchen when I get home. Feel free to kick this one over to Chef Keith. I can't thank you enough for all you do. Keep up the hard work. Thanks, John. I know that Chef Keith's experience with pronghorn antelope is absolutely zero. Um, he probably still could do well with it because he would probably take the approach I'm going to take, but I feel completely confident in my approach because I have eaten pronghorn. And I've had pronghorn that has a bit of a sagey character to the name. Eat the hell out of sagebrush. 
but I actually like sage, and I think most people do, so it's like somebody rubs your deer meat with some sage, man, uh, to a degree, right? In the end, though, they're very similar meats. They're, they're very similar meats. Pronghorn do a lot more running than deer, though, uh, and, and tend to actually do quite a bit more moving than deer. So they can be a little tougher, uh, especially when you know you're going out with a guide. You're probably looking for a, a large, mature buck, and I think that's a great idea. So you got to think about that a little bit. But the reality is, treat it like deer meat. Treat it like deer meat. And and the number one thing that people do to screw up deer meat is they cook it too long. They're afraid of it being pink or even dare I say red. That is the way to eat this meat. It is the healthiest, cleanest, safest meat you will ever, ever, ever have. And anybody who wants to talk about the prions from chronic wasting disease and you know deer and other animals, you're not going to cook that out anyway if you have that problem. So it's best to bone your meat, or you know you, you look at what the risks are and make your own determinations. But you know that's that you're not going to change that by by, by ruining a piece of meat. You're not going to change that risk. So here's a couple things I would say about pronghorn that I think would apply to whitetail as well. Number one, don't make your cuts too thin when you're cutting steaks and things like that. Make them thick. Number two, and this is all meat, right? When you're getting ready to cook it, get that meat, put it on paper towel, and get it dry before it goes on the grill in a frying pan, whatever. You're just going to get better results. You're going to get that crust. Season liberally with salt and pepper. Any other thing else you want, but liberally with salt and pepper. It helps develop that crust, that layer of flavor, browning that meat, getting that nice caramel color. It's not really caramelization because there's no sugar in there, right? unless we add some in a marinade or something like that. Um, I've given out so many different ways to cook meat. I don't want to just rehash all that, but I would tell you, like, so pronghorn, uh, one of the things that I think a lot of people do is, like, the back leg, they'll just make that a roast uh, or grind it or what have you. That The back leg from like your knee up, think about that part. And a little bit of it kind of gets sinewy all down there toward that knee. But that big part of like the ham, in a deer, pronghorn, elk, doesn't matter. There, there's different muscle groups in there. And without cutting muscle at all, pretty much just by separating membranes of your knife, you can actually separate that out into like three or four individual cuts of meat. And then you take those individually and cut steaks about one inch thick until you get down to where it's not practical anymore because you're down to a tip. Okay? And those are steaks. Now, you take all your tips, maybe from both legs, depending on how big the animal is. Maybe you make two of these, maybe you make three of these. You take all your tips and you cut them with the muscle grain, long ways. Okay? And these are going to become roasts. And get some pork butt and cut it into similar size pieces and get you can do this with butcher's twine or you can actually buy like twine butcher's netting that you just kind of stuff that into so half pork half pronghorn deer whatever from those little cuts of meat down there at the bottom that makes a fan freaking tastic roast for slow cooking but instead of like making the whole thing into a, a just big roast you end up with these really thick steaks. And again, you dry those, you grill them, or you, or you cook them in like a cast iron skillet, or you sous vide them. It's all fantastic. Don't overcook it. Don't overcook it. If it ain't at least pink, you've overcooked it. Um, the neck 
all that meat off the neck. I generally just grind that, but actually it makes a fantastic roast if you make a tide roast like I just talked about as well. Very, very good slow cooked. Um, I'm a big, I actually like the flank steaks off of deer and pronghorn. There's not a lot to it, but it's pretty good meat. I usually cut the ribs, just cut the ribs off and cut them up into smaller pieces and I'll take those with other bones and I'll make a bone stock unless you're worried about, you know, chronic wasting disease issues. I mean, no human's ever actually been infected with that from a wild animal. It's never happened. So I, I'm not that worried about it. Um, so I like make bone stock out of them and I throw the ribs and all that and all those little bits of meat that normally like you, if you try to make ribs of deer or pronghorn or whatever, there's so much uh, tallow mixed in with it that it just isn't really worth doing. Uh, the pronghorn that I've uh, harvested, I've never found a lot of tallow on them. They're very, very lean even compared to a deer. So I've never bothered with harvesting the, you know, rendering down the tallow. I always do that with my deer, though. And I love to cook deer with deer ta rendered deer tallow. It's a pretty freaking fantastic way to do things. Um, but that's, that's my basic advice. And if you've hunted deer your whole life and you have something you do with deer meat that you like, it will work just fine with pronghorn. It's not like you're going from, you know, eating deer to eating snapping turtle. It's, it's not like that at all. They're very, very similar meats. Um, a little bit lighter in color. Uh, more, if there's any real difference between mule deer and whitetail, more mule deer-ish, I guess. And that might just be a dietary thing. The mule deer that I've had have lived in similar habitat to pronghorns. I've never taken a whitetail in, like, that type of country. So I think I'm just accustomed to deer having the flavor that I'm accustomed to from their food sources being so radically different than, again, munching on sagebrush and stuff like that. But it's 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 not a difficult thing to do. Uh, and when you have that leftover meat that you're thinking about grinding, I, I tell people this all the time, don't just grind up all your deer meat. Just don't. In fact, I don't hardly grind any deer meat anymore because I have a small grinder, and if I want to grind up some meat, I can grind up meat whenever I want to. It takes a couple seconds, hot water bath for the grinder, and back it goes. You know, I mean, it's and, and the best way to grind meat is when it's almost frozen. So you take it out until it just starts to defrost, and even if it's in a big block, you take a big heavy butcher's knife and cut it into smaller chunks and throw it in the grinder, it grinds perfectly. Right? So why grind it? Because I might not want to grind it. So if I don't grind it, I can always grind it. Got it, right? I can always take, you know, two one-pound packs of cubes out of the refrigerator and decide I want to make chili and then put them through the coarse grinder. Always do that. I've ground it, and now I want to make stew. Make it hamburger stew because I can't put it back together. So I always take, and I make about one-pound packs of all the scraps that you would normally grind, trim them off pretty well. I don't get their real, I don't get real anal with it. Because you got this whole animal to process. And you're there getting every piece of fat and tallow and all the silver sheen and all. Where when you take a pound out, it only takes a few minutes to go through that one pound. So I just put all those chunks and label it stew meat and throw it in there. And if I want to make sausage or something, I take a couple packs out and do that with it. Uh, and by the way, yeah, I don't know if I would do it because you only have one. But pronghorn makes good biltong, buddy. I've, I've made some great pronghorn biltong. With that, let's go ahead and take another one. But, yeah, don't grind up your deer, guys. Cut all those chunks up, and that way you can do stew. You can take it out. You can grind it. It just, to me, makes a lot more sense. And it's a lot faster when you're processing the whole animal to do things that way. Okay, next up, I want to read an article to you. And I'm not even going to go deep into the article. I'm going to talk about this philosophically once I'm done reading this article. But here's the, the article. It is what it is. Perth Electrical Engineers' discovery will change climate change debate. A mathematical discovery by Perth-based electrical engineer Dr. David Evans may change everything about the climate debate on the eve of UN Climate Change Conference in Paris. A former climate modeler 
for the government's Australian greenhouse office with six degrees in applied mathematics. Dr. Evans has unpacked the architecture of basic climate model which underpins all climate science. He has found that while the underlying physics in the model is correct, it has been applied incorrectly. He has fixed two errors, and the new corrected model finds the climate sensitivity to carbon dioxide is much lower than was thought. It turns out the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, has overestimated the future global warming by as much as 10 times, he said. Yes, CO2 has an effect, but it's about a fifth or a tenth of what the IPCC says it is. CO2 is not driving the climate. It caused less than 20% of the global warming in the last few decades. Dr. Evans says his discovery ought to change the world. Quote, but the political obstacles are massive, end quote, he said. His discovery explains why none of the climate models used by the IPCC reflect the evidence of the recorded temperatures. The models have failed to predict the pause in global warming, which has been going on for 18 years and counting. The model architecture was wrong, he says. Carbon dioxide only causes minor warming. The climate is largely driven by factors outside of our control. There is another problem with the original climate model, which has been around since 1896. While climate change scientists have been predicting since the 1990s that changes in the temperature would follow changes in carbon dioxide, the records over the past half million years show that was not to be the case. So what... So the new improved climate model shows CO2 is not the culprit in recent global warming, but what is it? Dr. Evans has a theory, solar activity, what he calls abato modulation, the waxing and waning of reflected radiation from the sun is likely the cause of global warming. He predicts global temperatures, which have plateaued, will begin to cool significantly beginning between 2017 and 2021. The cooling will be about 0.3 degrees Celsius in the 2020s, Some scientists, not this one, but sometimes have even forecasted a mini ice age in the 2030s. If Dr. Evans is correct, then he has proven the theory on carbon dioxide wrong and blown a hole in the climate alarmism. He will have explained why doomsday predictions on climate scientists aren't reflected in actual temperatures. It took me years to figure this out, but finally there is a potential resolution between the, it's, and the insistence of the climate scientists that CO2 is a big problem and empirical evidence that it doesn't have nearly as much effect as they say. Dr. Evans is an expert in Fourier analysis and digital signal processing. With a Ph.D. and two master's degrees from Stanford University in electrical engineering, a Bachelor of Engineering, uh, for which he won a university medal, Bachelor of Science, and a Master's of Applied Maths from the University of Sydney. He has been sum summarizing his results in a series of blog posts on his wife's Genova's blog for climate skeptics. He's about halfway through his series with blog post 8, applying the Stefan Boltzmann Law to Earth, published on Friday. When it, come, when it is completed, his work will be published as two specific papers. Both papers are undergoing peer review. It's a new paradigm, he says. It has several new ideas for people to get used to. You heard it here first. Okay. Let me tell you something about this article. It's over two years old, which is from 2015. And when I looked into this guy, it turns out he is attacked all over the Internet as a climate denier. He's actually on the deniers list. Now, here's what I'm going to say. You can't say this guy is not a scientist, right? It, but he's not an environmental scientist. He's a mathematician. Yes, and he's working with the mathematics. See, an environmental scientist is not a mathematician. They would collect the data. 
It would be an advanced mathematician that would then work out the formulas. Now, is this guy right? I'm going to say that I don't know. And the reason I'm going to say that I don't know is even though I agree with the conclusion, I haven't checked out his math and I probably would not understand it if I did. My intuition is he's probably right, but I know that saying, well, he's a denier and he's debunked, is not debunking what the man has put out, and you're not going to debunk the fact that he's an expert or not. He's an expert. He's a, a, much more of an expert than what that Bill Nye Science twaddle-watt on, on the TV is. I'm, I'm sorry, right? He just is. And what I haven't seen is somebody specifically say, well, here's his methodology and here's why it's flawed. All I see is a bunch of hatred. And that's what I wanted to talk to you about with this. Why people like me, and I know if you believe in climate change, you're going to get angry when I say this, but why we call it a religion. This is why we call it a religion, because somebody brings out an articulate, logical, concise argument, and they are maligned, basically, blasphemy. Everybody knows this is true. And if you look at religion, and you look at the cult of, of, of climatology, right, instead of Scientology, the cult of climatology, you heard that one here first, the, cl the cult of climatology, um, you can see it's a religion. So what are some hallmarks of a religion? One is that the authority is not to be questioned. You don't tell the priest what the Bible says the priest tells you. You're free to read your Bible all you want, but when, when, the, when the priest or the pope, whoever the bishop, whoever's the hierarchy in your church says this is, this, this is what it is, you either leave that church or you agree. And when somebody says the religion is wrong, it's not true, oh, evil, bad, Satan, get thee behind me. Right? And that the extreme members of a religion will react with violence or suggested violence like the, 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 the nut jobs in the Westboro Baptist Church that do not represent mainstream Christianity. I know that, but they're extreme Christians. They've taken the religion to its extreme, and they shout at grieving parents whose, whose children have died in war that their children are burning in hell because they were fighting to support the rights of faggots. Okay? Those are sick people. They're sick people. That's radical religionism. Calling for hatred for non-believers. You don't agree with me? You should be put in jail. I mean, no one's ever suggested jailing climate deniers, have they? Hmm, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, they have. Some pretty well-known people have suggested that. It's a religion. It's a religion Because people believe it without even understanding why they believe it. They don't even know the actual theories. Now, what he's actually talking about here is the parts of the climate model that we look at as feedbacks. If you increase CO2 in the atmosphere, you will hold in more heat. That's physical reality. Nobody doubts that. Not even the deniers. Okay? But it can only do so much. CO2 basically grabs onto like its favorite wavelengths of light. And once you get past that, going up two, three times doesn't really do much. Now going up a hundred times, a thousand times, so you actually change the density, well then you might get somewhere with, with water. Because you'll hold more water in the atmosphere. And water's really good. But there's a whole group of feedbacks that are part of the climate model. 
So there's the baseline warming from CO2. And then there's all these other feedbacks that are supposedly connected to the CO2. That's the Don't get mad at me. The people that are the scientists that you put your faith in, that's their theory. That's what they say. They don't they would say, "Yeah, he's right. That's what we say and it's true. Just believe us because we said so." Okay? But if you actually start to pick apart the data, and I have a fantastic video for you by Stefan Molyneux. He's reading another researcher's work through the whole thing. The Skeptic's Case for Climate Change. Explaining why. Watch it. Educate yourself. And when you're the kind of person that says, well, I don't even care. I don't want to see that. Well, that's that's what I'm saying. It's a religion. It's a, it's a belief system that you can't let be challenged. Think about what happens when you take a devoutly religious person that's not secure in their faith. They're just devoutly attached to it and challenge their faith. How do they react? They react the exact same way. And here's the biggest hallmark of religion. In a religion, what you say is more important than what you do. I know I'm offending some of you. I'm sorry, it's true. And here's what I mean by that. I don't mean that like it's okay to be a shitty person as long as you say the right words. But I will tell you that Christianity, for instance, if a person is truly repentant, they go to heaven. Even if they did a lot of shitty things in their life. But a person that did a lot less shitty things, but doesn't believe in Jesus, well, they're doomed for hell. So the, the person that lives a morally upright life. Now, some of you are saying, well, I'm Christian. I don't believe that. Okay, I know you don't, but it's what your faith says. Read your book. It's pretty clear. You're choosing to alter your faith. That's fine with me. I'm glad you are. But, you know, if you read the book and actually see what it says, it yeah, it's pretty clear. Like, none. None come to the Father except through the Son. That's pretty freaking, I mean, a legal contract, there'd be nobody disputing that. So the profession of faith exceeds living the right way. So you can have a person that the left should be in love with. Solar panels on their house, a little personal wind generator in the backyard, growing their own food, sustainably raising their animals. Guy that makes Joel Salatin look like a hack, right? Just... Zero carbon footprint. Oh, we love him. And if he says, yeah, but I think global warming's a fraud. I'm doing all this because it makes sense and there's all kinds of real pollution. Oh, now he's a denier and they hate him. When you react because of what a person believes beyond what they do, it is the hallmark of a religion. First there is the belief and then there is the behavior. That is how all religions work. All modern revealed religions, anyway, work that way. First there is the belief, and then there is the behavior. And a person that behaves properly, but doesn't believe, is anti of that religion, or at least we've gotten to a point in society where like most of us now are like, well, I'm a Christian, and he's, a, he's Jewish, and he's a Muslim, and as long as nobody's hurting anybody, I don't really care. But if you press the person... Most will say, yeah, I mean, you should get on the winning team here, right? I mean, uh, there's a reason I've chosen what I've chosen for myself. It's what I believe is true. But what we actually have with AGW is a lot more like religion in like the 1600s. Or religion at the time of Christ where blasphemers were stoned in the streets. You're just an evil, vile, stupid person for not believing in global warming. And no matter what you say... As to your reasonings, you're still written off. It's having not a single bit of valid opinion 
because you're not a climate scientist. When most of the people running their mouth about this are also not climate scientists. And the thing about religions is they always get blown up with myth. And there's things in the religion that actually aren't part of the religion. I'll go back to Christianity because it's what I know. It's where I come from. Like, the wise men weren't there when Jesus was born. I don't care how many times you've seen that in a play at school. That's not what happened. They went to his house after he was born. They were not there. In the book. That's what the book says. Not me. But that tradition becomes the truth, and nobody even checks to see if it's real anymore. Now, I know some of you don't believe at all in the Christian faith. I think it's all made up. I understand that, but I'm still saying, just like government, right? I don't really think government's legitimate, but if we're going to have government, we should hold it to its own standards, all right? So I'm saying, going back and look, there's some analysis here, uh, analogies here, all right? But this is the same thing. So I talk to these young people when I'm out and about, and they, I remember sitting at a hotel in California. It wasn't Hotel California. It was actually like a Ramada or something like that. Permaculture Voices, lots of hippies there, right? Young hippies. I don't know what you call young hippies. I guess you call them hipsters, right? And they're like, man, and the guys are like, man, people don't understand. Like, where we're sitting here in 20 years, it's all going to be underwater. We're, we're about 20 feet above the waterline. The worst predictions by the IPCC aren't even close to that being a reality. Not even close. We're all going to die. That's not what they say. That's not what the true believer authority group says. We've gotten to where we're so, this religion has gone so manic that what they're spouting isn't even what their vaulted authority figures they're always appealing to are saying. They don't even know their own faith. They're basically like people that believe the TV preacher was really talking about them because they said, I feel God moving through me right now. And there's a man. There's a man right now. He's wondering. He's wondering if God still is in his life and if God can still touch him. And I know you're out there right now and you're wondering what to do. Well, it's time for you to take a step of faith so God can move in your life. Make that contribution. Call the number now. God is telling me, God is telling me, John, it's you, John, right now. He's telling me he wants to move in your life. He wants to put his hand back into your life. But you have to take that first step. You have to send that contribution in, John. And when you do, God will move in your life in ways you can't imagine. And make that contribution as big as you can, because whatever it is is going to be returned to you tenfold. Knowing that, take the step with me, John. God wants to move in your life. And it's like a whole assload of Johns that listen to that televangelist that think they're talking about the actual Christian faith that they don't know nothing about. They don't know anything about it. It's Genesis, its roots, its interpretations, what it means, the history of the church, the Reformation, right? They don't know anything. But they watched that TV preacher, and he said it was John. I, I was sitting there. How would he know my name? That's how I see most of these people that are addicted to this, this climate change religion. And I'll leave you with this. Two things. Number one, I think it's the worst thing that's happened to real environmentalism in the last hundred years. Man, when I was a kid in school, 
I think most people were for fixing the environment as best we could. And if it took some work or sacrifice or giving something, as long as it wasn't everything, well, we'd do something. And look at what it's like now. Perfectly divided, split in two, dichotomy, and a false one. And the false dichotomy is what? If you don't believe in climate change, you hate the earth. That is the most stupid, moronic statement. Most of the people politically where they fall on the line that don't believe in climate change are conservative Republicans. That, that is a true statement. They've, they've, that's where they've gone. Those are the people that hunt and fish. They're involved in all kinds of environmental groups. I mean, to say they hate the earth is just stupid. That's retarded. But that's how false dichotomies work. And they work because of faith versus fact. They work because of faith versus fact. And lastly, those of you that are involved in movements like permaculture, environmentalism, etc., If somebody told you that you believed climate change is fake, CO2 doesn't do shit, would you still do the things that you're doing? And I think those of us that are environmentalists that don't believe in AGW wouldn't change a thing. Why would we? See, if you found out that the central tenet of your faith was false, you'd quit practicing your religion. You'd have to, right? If you actually found out for 100% true, this is false. This doctrine of belief is false. And I think a lot of people, all of the things that they do are like sacraments to their faith instead of things that are common sense and make sense. And it's just a terrible way to be controlled. But I invite you to watch three videos, two of them by Dr. David Evans, who is the mathematician we talked about, Global Warming Part 1 and Part 2, and The Skeptic's Case on Climate Change by Stefan Molyneux. I have all three linked in today's show notes. Anyway, if you like this show and the work that I do, even though I refer to a large number of you as idiots today, I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry. I just call it like I see it, and sometimes people need to hear it. I've been an idiot before myself, and I've usually admitted it. Maybe I'll do a segment one day, Jack was an idiot instead of Jack was wrong. Um, if you like the show and the work I do, and you want it to keep coming out of your speaker so you can listen to it, or out of your headphones so you can listen to it, one of the ways you can support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. You go there and do your online shopping from that point. Everything you do after that will help support the Survival Podcast, and that applies to you if you're in the United States, Canada, or the United Kingdom. Today I have an item for review up for you called the 2-inch ice cube mold by Home Complete. Now, let me tell you how I found this thing and why, and why I'm actually excited over the simple thing. First of all, it's made out of silicon, like those silicon cooking trays and stuff like that, and it makes two-inch ice cubes, ironically, right? So it's just basically a grid with eight two-inch cube spaces in it, and you fill it up and you make big, giant ice cubes. And you get two of them for like ten bucks, like five bucks a piece. The way this happened was, and this is quite a while ago, I was with Brian Black, and we were downtown Fort Worth. He goes, we've got to go to the Bird Cafe and get an old-fashioned. And I'm like, Brian, I don't really like old fashions. Yet. Come on, I'm buying. If you don't like it, I'll buy you something else. You got to try it. All right. So I, and I was like, Oh my God, this is amazing, amazing drink. And it's not like old, you know, old fashioned, old fashioned thing. You get you know your fruit and you muddle it with sugar and then you add your bur. It's made with like they. These are people like chemists down at this place. They're like madman chemists that work with alcohol. Uh, they have like their own house made orange liqueur that they make by roasting the orange rinds and they use an orange bitter and two other bitters and they, I did find out that they're using uh, Knob Creek rye as their bourbon and a, a brand of cherry brandy escapes me right now they're using a cherry brandy and there's one little 
orange peel in there to garnish, but they're not doing any muddling, which is with a old-fashioned. Anyway, I get this glass, and I take a sip of it, and I'm like, oh, my God. And I love their old, and I'm right now trying to clone it. I'm not there yet, so I'm not giving the recipe out until I get it, right? But um, there's this big, giant-ass ice cube in there. And I realized right, right away why that's there. I've had cocktails like that before. So it won't melt so fast and water down this amazing drink. So I, I start trying to make this drink finally after like a year of, of going on about it. And every time we go downtown telling Dorothy, when we're done eating, we're going to Bird Cafe. I'm gonna give She's like, why don't you make that at home? I'm like, I don't know how. She's like, well, you, you're a smart guy. Figure it out. So I started working on it. And the first thing I, I realized when I started doing it, when you use regular ice in it, it just, it just doesn't really work out. It melts down. And you don't have that... This is a slow sipping drink. This is something that you take like 30 minutes to have one, and it's only a couple ounces, right? You slowly sip one, you savor it. So I, I went on Amazon, and I started looking around, and I found these things, and they're awesome. And I think they make great gifts. If you have friends, family, et cetera, that like to do the bartender thing at home, man, they would love these. And I got another use for you. We have been making bone stock and beef stock and stuff like that for years, and we pour it into basically like these little silicon muffin things, And we freeze them, and then we take them out, just like ice cubes, and throw them in a bag. And that way, when you're going to cook and you need some stock for flavor, you just pull that bag out and grab one or two of them and pitch them in. Well, the problem has always been I don't like doing it because it's kind of a pain in the ass, and they have a, it has a tendency that you spill because they're not really for that, are they? They're for going in ovens, not freezers. They're a little bit too big of a footprint, etc. They're not real deep, generally. Well, these things are made to fill with liquid and freeze, So these are great for storing your bone stocks, your chicken stocks, stuff like that, vegetable stocks, in the freezer for that quick, efficient use. So double duty, and you know me, I don't like one-trick ponies for anything. I like things that function stack. I'm sure there's other things you can think of to do with them. Uh, but again, silicon, really great product. Check them out and definitely consider getting them for gifts. Oh, important. Um, <clears throat> I didn't notice this when I ordered mine, so I just ordered to come a set of two for $9.99. But right in the description, it says get 5% off when you buy two. Gives you a coupon code and get 10% off when you buy three or more. I'll probably be buying more of these because these are going to make great gifts. This is, I, I think any guy that mixes a drink at home would like these. And the other thing about them is even if you're not an adult, adult beverage type person, that big ice cube cools all liquid. If you don't want to, the only thing I wouldn't use it in is water because it's water, right? But like, you know, if you're having like, uh, like you make your like strawberry limeade that I make or like, You know, your own sodas and stuff like that. I mean, why water it down? You put that big ice cube in there, and it just works better. Uh, they make about eight a piece, so two of them will make you 16 cubes at a time. I pop them out, throw them in a gallon uh, Ziploc bag, and, you know, you don't use them that fast, so that lasts a long time. So I think two is probably enough for most people. Uh, you can buy one if you only want one, though. I have a link to all that stuff and more. But remember, every time you shop online through tspaz.com, you help support Survival Podcast and the work that we do here all the time. Uh, next up, let's talk about our song of the day. Song of the day today is a song called Explorer Suite by a band called New England. And somewhere in my head, I know that I have heard this song before and, and, and kind of contemplated this song before, but it's not a real familiar song to me. But here's what John Adams says about it. This was a talented band that never quit, found their own identity. The song is a loosely reminiscent of Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody, with its operatic vocals and piano. And when I started listening, I'm like, yeah, absolutely. It pales in comparison, but it's still a good song. It also has some David Bowie and Boston influences. The story centers on the emotional sacrifices a family goes through when a father pursues his, pursues his dream of space travel, but may not ever return. 
and it's told from both sides. The like, kind of like I guess there's a little Elton John there too, right? Rocket Man, it's lonely out in space. I miss my wife. Like it doesn't say it that way, but like the, the the guy that's drifted and lonely in space, and the family who's wanting him to come home. And I think it, it it's it's a good song for today because we talked about America, and you know what America as a nation is, and and what people would do to be part of America. Now there are people that their whole family came with them here. But there's a lot of people that came to America and that couldn't bring their family and people they loved. And they came anyway. They made that sacrifice. Some never to return. Some never to see those family members again. I grew up hearing of family members that I never met for one reason, because by the time they were telling me about them, they were dead. But the reason that I wouldn't have met them probably anyway is they were still in the Ukraine, which was then part of the Soviet Union. And my family left just before that whole kind of shit storm went down. And some of the people they left died in Huladorma. But they had to make a choice. Leave or stay. And that's really what's happened here. You, you know, do something incredible like explore the cosmos, but you never see your family again. And when we think about Huge sacrifices like that, I think it makes us more willing to take the small sacrifices that we see as being bigger than they really are. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Thank you. 